This is the Employee Experience and Education Podcast, the teacher retention podcast for school leaders, and I'm your host, Eric Brainstetter. In this podcast, we'll speak with educational leaders, former educators, and industry experts to better understand the employee experience in education. Our goal is to equip school leaders with realistic and actionable strategies to keep more teachers in the classroom. On this episode, we'll speak with author, founder, and speaker, Larry Davis. Today, Larry shares his unique insights on the need to transition from classroom management to classroom leadership. Larry also shares the connection between data and culture, ways to address the well-being of teachers, and the analysis you need to conduct in your organization today. Hey, Larry, good to see you again, and thanks so much for joining us today. Um, You know, one of the big struggles in education is, of course, student behavior. And I'm really excited to hear about how you help educators improve their own employee experience through things like behavior strategies and rethinking leadership models. But before we get to that, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and who should be paying attention today? You know what? Well, first of all, thank you for having me. I know we've been trying to get this scheduled for a while and it's been my part that's been lagging behind. So I apologize for that. But, you know, I think when we think about education, everyone should be listening, right? But if we have to have a select audience, I want it to be parents, students, and teachers. And then that second tier audience needs to be administrators and superintendents, because you can't fix what's going on in our education system from central office. It has to be all inclusive, all constituents, all stakeholders, parents, students, community leaders, business leaders, church leaders, we're talking about children, and, it, and we know the old adage, it takes a village to raise a child. So the village should be listening. That's perfect, yeah. So I know, Larry, you've spent time both in education and out of education. I'd love to hear about your past a little bit, your career, and then what pulled you into K-12 education originally? You know, I was in corporate America for 12, maybe 14 years in various leadership positions, and I was somewhat of a troubleshooter. I would go to problem areas, problem branches, and within three months turned around, but then I would actually be moved to some another location to do the same thing. And what happened was people would come in after me and get promoted based on my work because that unit or that branch was performing so perfectly, but they're not the ones who turned it around. And when I uh, went to my uh, regional director, I remember asking him, I said, listen, I go into these branches and turn them around. And we're talking about blockbuster video right now, just for say. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, uh, I turn them around, but the person who comes in after me is the one who's getting promoted. And he said, well, Larry, I got to tell you, you're making me too much money and bonus for me to <laughs> promote you to my position. And I was like, wow. And so uh, after that, I decided, you know, I was about to be a dad and I wanted my schedule to align with my with my my son's schedule, who's you know about to be a first time dad. And what I realized was I couldn't do that working in corporate America because I was being sent from one location to another and I need to have something more permanent. So I looked at uh, private education. Charter schools were on the horizon. They were not really there yet, but the private schools were there. And I looked at those and what I found was they were the numbers were so small that there was no uh, socialization, no diversity in there for a child. So then I substituted at a, uh, at Arlington ISD, actually my first time substituting. And uh, that to what was going on. And what I realized is at that time, I mean, we're talking about 1995, 96. At that time, if you were an African-American child, chances of you having an African-American male teacher was almost less than 5% unless you was an athlete. So I think the choice was made clearly then. And so my goal was to 
become a teacher and put my child's face, not the color of their skin, but my child's face on every child who entered my classroom. That way I knew they would get the education they deserved. Mm -hmm. So how did you go from Blockbuster then to teacher? And then you've written, what, seven books? Is that right? Seven books. You know, and so, <laughs> you know here's, the, here's the funny thing. So what I realized when I was in corporate America, and I were, you know, so I, here's, I was at Pizza Hut, Blockbuster, Gap, Gap Kids. Uh, and what I, what I realized was I was always in a training mode. I was always teaching, you know, and I told myself when I left high school, they would have to pay me to come back to high school. That's how much I didn't enjoy. <laughs> and lo and behold, they paid me and I became a teacher. <laughs> so that, that's how I got back there. But, you know, I will tell you, it was probably the most rewarding thing I've ever done becoming a teacher. I was in corporate America, but I wasn't connected to it. I was good at it, but I wasn't connected to it. Nothing I did made me feel significant. You know, and I think if we surround ourselves with significant people, the world is filled with successful people, but everybody who's successful isn't significant. But you can't find me one significant person who isn't successful. So I want to do something that have some significance to it. Hmm. No, that's fantastic. I know just thinking back at my own career in education, one of the biggest challenges that I faced was student behavior. And that's both as a teacher and as an administrator. And as an admin, you know, most of my time was spent working with kids, working with parents, working on teachers, with teachers on behavioral interventions, on paperwork, documentation, talking to the police, following up, like the list just goes on and on. And I, I remember a couple of times when I went into a teacher's classroom, the teacher had asked me to come observe, provide some, some guidance, some help. And I sat down and watched and I thought to myself, I'm not sure that I really know what to do right now. And this teacher is asking for my help. So you work with teachers and administrators all the time, specific around student behavior. Take us into the minds and hearts of a teacher first, if you would. What, what's it like from a teacher's perspective with student behavior in and, and out every day, working with students, trying to figure out behaviors, how do we get them? You know, compliance is part of that, but we want students to be engaged and be part of the classroom. What, what does that do to teachers when they don't have that kind of an environment in their classroom? Well, if, they're, if they don't have, let's say classroom management, which is a term I really don't like to use, right? Because I really want my teachers to be classroom leaders, right? Mm. And when I was a principal, I uh, tried to get my superintendent to uh, change the tag on their name tag to say dream makers, right? Something that's promising, you know, but uh, when you say classroom management, we're talking about managing a situation. That's not leading kids to learn. So I think that whole concept is part of the problem. The next thing is we, our, our, our teachers come out of education, out of our education institutions with all the theory in the world. They get, they get to do a semester of student teaching but that's not a real that's not a real example of what they're going to be teaching because that's not their classroom. Right. Mm -hmm. And the other teachers are always sitting there to ready to jump in and redirect students if they're off task. So I think preparing them more so and what they can expect, because theory doesn't. Here's the thing about theory. Theory does not include the human element. Right. It does not include children from different backgrounds, children from different uh, socioeconomic situations, children from different communities. It doesn't include that. And sometimes our teachers come into education and they've never had to deal with such a diverse population in one setting, right? And, uh, and the other thing is they really believe that just because a student walked through the door, they want to learn. <laughs> You know, they, they may want to learn, but they want you to make them learn. Right. They want that structure. And if our classrooms don't have structure in it, that's when you start to see the disconnect. 
right? Think about it. Uh, I don't know if you have any children, but I can read my, my children right now are grown, Eric. So 27 mm-hmm. and 21. But I remember when they were like, you know, six and 10, even 12, and they would just put one video game in after another, one video game after because they just played the game and, oh, that's got hard. Let me play this one. Right. There was no structure there to saying, look, we're going to face this challenge and we're going to move forward. You're going to get through this. So uh, when you start talking about discipline and, and our children and expectations, I think that's the thing. We got to get rid of the rules. And I know that sounds weird, <laughs> but we have to focus on the expectations of children. Yeah. So if I'm a teacher, then if I'm if I'm struggling, you know, I've, I've got a classroom, maybe it's kindergartners, maybe it's seniors in high school and I struggle with classroom management. What what am I feeling? What am I thinking? How does this affect me kind of in the short term? And then are there implications for that environment on the teacher? Are, are they more likely to leave in the long run? What kind of an impact or toll does it take on the actual teacher when classroom management, insert whatever your term is, um, isn't going well for me? Yeah, you know, at least we know that uh, one third of all teachers leave between the first three to five years of teaching, right? And but it's not always that the discipline that makes them leave. Sometimes it's the leadership. When you when you look at the data, they are they leave. people don't leave companies; they leave people. So mm-hmm. sometimes teachers leave because they didn't feel like they were supported, and that that support could be in a form of discipline of students, right? Mm-hmm. But when you when we think about when we put together our our goals for the year, we should never our goals should never be disciplining kids because I, there's not a school in this country that where we discipline kids back into being in compliance. <laughs> you know? yeah. It's just not a thing, but you know, we know we have to deal with it. And truthfully, uh, on, a, on a really affluent campus, right? Five to 7% of your students are the ones who constantly get in trouble, right? After COVID, that probably was more like 10 to 15% because they had been sitting at home. They missed a whole year of school. We had students coming back in eight, I mean, in seventh grade, who the last time they was in school, they were in fifth grade and they missed the whole sixth grade year because they were at home. So they were, you know, the whole structure and culture had to be recreated. But we came in and we tried to power through it without trying to recreate that dynamic. And so uh, that was a disconnect with parents, students and, and the education system. So uh, but I think the whole social, social emotional component for teachers, right, they're stressed out. Uh, they have they are given assignments. They're given state standards. They're given accountability. They're given all these things. And here's here's my favorite quote. That I tell teachers, we educate the creativity out of children and we legislate the creativity out of teachers. We're not allowed to teach anymore. We're too busy giving them accountability and standards. Why not let them teach? You know, here in Texas, we offer uh, EOC for uh, uh, high school students to graduate. And under the English EOC, they have a 26 line essay they have to write. That writing does not fit the writing of any other thing we do. It's not newspaper writing, it's not editorial writing, it's not APA, it's not MLA. So why have them write something that they're only gonna use one time in their life? Mm-hmm. It's, you know, that to me, that's not, that's just not a good way. That's a, that's a waste of quality education time and instruction. So we need to align what we test them into what they're gonna be doing in, in the real world. And there's nothing we do in high school really that prepares them for college. Yeah. That's now, our kids struggle with freedom in college. It's the freedom. <laughs> there's no bells ringing, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I know, uh, I know many teachers, and I'm, I'm thinking back to my own staff now, who, again, I, I would go in and I would help and I'd be of assistance whenever possible. 
a lot of teachers tend to try to handle everything themselves and not want to, and I'm putting in quotes here, bother anybody else with their challenges, right? They're, you have your classroom and I don't want to bother anybody else. But sometimes that's at the expense of their own mental and sometimes even physical health. So what, what do you think are some signals that school leaders should watch out for with their teachers to understand that maybe something is not right, even when the teacher is trying to make it seem as if everything is okay? What should I be watching out for for me to realize that maybe some teachers are not doing okay right now? You know what? Here's the interesting thing. The, the, the best sign that your best people are getting ready to leave, they stop talking. Hmm. They stop asking questions. They stop being involved in meetings. So, I mean, those signs, but here's the thing. We, we, we really have to focus on when kids come back to school, when our students come back to school, we want to get right to teaching. We need to spend that first, first to 15 days talking about campus culture, talking about classroom structure, right? And there are some, here's the thing, there are some really good teachers who never write referrals. And, I'm, and they're not stressing out. They just, have, they just have great structure and engagement in their classrooms. And, and they have it because they spend the first 10 to 15 days talking about the expectations of that classroom and letting everybody know. And the reason I say 10 to 15 days is because the first three weeks of school is when we're taking time to level classes. We're moving kids around. So every teacher needs to be on the same page. What can what kind of classroom expectations should you expect? What kind of procedures are we going to handle? How are we going to get supplies? How are we going to be dismissed? You know, the bell doesn't dismiss you. I do. Are we going to pick up around our desk? All these things has to be established in the first 15 days of school, but teachers do it one day and expect students to have it. And it doesn't work that way. And that's where you see the stress at because they'll say, I told them, well, no, you, you didn't tell them. <laughs> you didn't do anything. You just brought it up. You have to engage them. And I'm a big proponent of social contracts where the students tell you the expectations you can expect from them. I love those. So, you know, and here's the thing, Eric, I, I talk about this. I believe it's called brace, right? Beliefs, relationships, attitudes, culture and climate and environment and engagement. Those are the most important components to having a successful classroom. And these are all done on the side of the adult, not the student. Yeah. And I think that's an important part. And as I'm hearing you talk, I'm thinking through now the lens of a, a principal, an assistant principal, a dean on the campus, where I'm trying to balance the expectations that the district has of me in terms of my scores, in terms of you know the, the ratings that we have. How can I, in my own mind, justify and maybe stay patient with my teachers need to set up the classroom culture, the environment where students are able to succeed, that everybody knows the expectations of the classroom, the structure of the classroom, how do I not rush that? How do I stay patient with that? Well, I think it's that urgency that's created by that accountability system that puts that in, in jeopardy, right? Mm -hmm. So let's put the, you and I, you, we both went to college, right? Mm -hmm. And we both had a semester class and we both have taken a summer session, right? Mm -hmm. How is it I can get the same credit for a summer session, four and a half weeks, that I get for a 16-week course in college? How can I get the same half credit in nine days in summer school and high school that I get over at 16 weeks or 18 weeks, I'm sorry, in high school? There's so many things that's being taught in our classrooms that's kind of filler, right? And so this is where our academic disconnect comes in. A person who's well-read, who's well-versed, understands critical information. And they're only going to take information, they're going to take notes based on information they know is critical. 
the average student doesn't know that, hasn't been taught that, and they're constantly taking all of these notes, all these notes. And so that's the disconnect right there. So we we spend we can we can spend time because there's time to reduce some of that fluff information that we don't need, right? Mm-hmm. There's information that we're sharing. And here's the thing, everything we teach, every, in Texas we call them TEKS. Everywhere else they call the uh, common core standards, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but in Texas we call them the TEKS. Our TEKS are recovered at least three times in each semester. It's covered in a different level, at a higher level, right? And so that student is getting that. And so we have the time if we just take it. We have the time if we just align it properly. We can change our scope and sequence to where it aligns out properly. We can do curriculum maps to where it allows for us to go and set that climate and culture and then start working with our children. It's not to say we can't start giving them work in that first three weeks, but we want to make sure we cover expectations, climate and culture. Okay, Mr. Davis, if I don't have if I don't have my homework, what should we do? Okay, class, if a student doesn't have the homework, what should we do? Right? If I, if our student is off task three times, what should we do? Let's get the students to say what we should do, right? And then devise a social contract that the students created in three weeks. And we have time because again, even at the end of the school year after we've done all the state testing, teachers are hustling to find work to give kids and kids are that especially that top 10 kid is saying oh that's filler work i'm not doing that (laughs) that's a worksheet i'm not doing that so instead of having all that time at the end of the year let's take that time and put it at the beginning of the year and set our classroom culture yeah i know you recently presented on instructional strategies that reduce behavior problems i'm curious how much of what you're talking about right now that first 10 to 15 days setting the classroom culture how much of that is focused Versus how much have you worked on like individual strategies that teachers can implement throughout the school year? Both. I would tell you both because you want to have some universal strategies campus wide. So if a student transferred to another classroom or even in your district, so if a student transferred to another campus in your district, the expectations are the same. But when you start talking about let's let's talk about our students who are always in trouble, that that 10 percent, right, who's just repeat offenders. Mm -hmm. We have to learn to discipline without rejection. Right. And so often when we discipline, it's done in anger. Right. And once we once you put anger in the in the in the, in the equation, now you've disciplined with rejection. Mm. I've, every time I've written a referral, even as a principal, when I had to talk with parents and students, I apologize. I say, you know, it's unfortunate. And I want to apologize that we are all sitting here right now. And unfortunately, we this decision that I have to make can't be changed. And it's you know, and I can't alter it. But here's the result of what has happened and what transpired with your student. But here's what I can, what you can expect when your student comes back to campus or comes out of ISS or comes back from out of school suspension. They're going to be a valuable part of this learning environment. And I would love to have you join us because I know that you are an influence on your child. So with you being here, I know what I can expect from your child. So it's an opportunity to apologize for the situation, embrace the situation, and then invite the parent to be part of the the community, because we know that when parents are involved in our students' education, they're successful. Mm-hmm. Funny, I, I think back. So my my oldest son in kindergarten, we got a call from the school principal, right? And, and it's the same district where I was an administrator myself. And my my wife took the call. Her number was on the the, the SIS. Yes. So she came in and said, "I just talked to the principal. Our son is in the office," and I was like. Why? What happened? And she explained that it, it was a recess thing, right? right? There was a competition at recess. But what you said, the discipline without rejection, when we went to the administrator's office, 
I couldn't help as an adult because I have those feelings too. Going into a school, I'm getting sent sure. to the principal's even office, even though that was me for a while. Correct. There is an adult rejection too that yes. I think we have to be very cognizant of because, and not to stereotype by any means, but oftentimes students who don't have the skills to be successful in what we consider to be successful in school come from an environment where that's not taught. The expectations might not be the same from their parents because those parents have those same feelings as well that, well, I didn't do well in school. I heard that all the time. I was always in trouble as this is coming from parents that I worked with. I was in trouble all the time. I never did well in school. There is this understanding of themselves thinking, well, they're going to be like me and this is how I was. The system didn't work for me. The system's not going to work for our kid as well. How often have you seen that play out? Well, you hear it all the time. And the, and the thing is, when, when a parent would say that, I would ask the student to step out, right, as an, as an administrator. And I would say, you know, here's the thing. I don't want you to excuse your child's actions by what you did when you were a child mm-hmm. or when you were a student. So but looking back on that moment when you said you were not a good student, what was in play? And they'll, they'll tell you, they'll be honest, you know what, I just didn't like school. I said, okay, so let's not paint that picture for your child because we know how important school is in their future. And then, we, you know, I had that conversation. We bring the child back in and then a parent would deal with the child situation and not try to own it themselves. Mm-hmm. Right. And that, it is. It's very discouraging. And now uh, Ru- Ruby Payne, she wrote a book and I cannot uh, educate through poverty or something like that. I can't remember the exact title, but she said something about and it's very true and very relevant. Parents will come to the school and defend their child. Because that child is terrorizing the home as well. So they come to the school to defend the child, hoping they'll get a break at home. Mm. <laughs> you know, and so you have to look at that. But that's not just in poverty. Those are in affluent situations. I've seen more affluent students speak poorly to their parents than children from low socioeconomic uh, uh, communities. Right. Mm-hmm. So but you're exactly right. How do we have to we have to actually navigate that parent away from owning the situation? Mm-hmm. This we're not talking about you, right? And, and yes, and and when you were a kid, we had regular gas, but now we all we have is unleaded, <laughs> <laughs> right? So what what else do you work with in terms of of student behavior? Because that's one of the topics again that that comes up in every educator's life: student discipline. I know that's an area where a lot of people struggle right now. So knowing that superintendents, principals, school leaders are listening. What other kind of strategies have you seen successful from a, an employee experience perspective to support teachers, to help teachers, to make sure that their experience at school is a positive one? Well, okay. First of all, I think we have to realize that first, you know, we we don't have standardized children, right? And to have an expectation that you're going to come in, you're going to create this lesson plan and every child is going to embrace it, get rid of it. <laughs> get rid of it. Lesson plans work from class to class. Um, I tell you, and so here's, here's what I used to do. <laughs> Excuse me. Here's what I used to do. I would be the first person to call. I would call my parents before the first day of school. I did not want them to hear from me. The first call for me to be something about their child's discipline or behavior or anything like yeah, that. Yeah. The next thing was now that we have a positive first impression, hi, hi I'm Mr. Davis. I'm your, I'm your student's teacher. I'll have them this year. Looking forward to working with you. I had an opportunity to invite the parent into the into the classroom. And I was like, oh, by the way, here are some times that we're going to be meeting during the year that you can come and visit and see what's going on in the classroom. I set that I set that scenario up right then. Uh, but then you have to understand that 
again, like we don't have standardized children. Understand that kids are going to, our children are going to come to us with different needs, different backgrounds, different learnings, different prior knowledges, right? So as a teacher, don't set your classroom up as you're going to pace them through at a certain pace. You need to have staggered environments in your classroom. Understand that you can do so, learning groups, learning stations, and put our kids in different, and then take those top five kids who, who are in every classroom, right? Use them as peer tutors because students okay. understand student talk better than they do adult talk, especially the student who's struggling. Hmm. I mean, how many times have you, you've seen it yourself, uh, you said something to your child or, and, and his friend comes in and says the exact same thing and he goes, see dad, he gets it. And you're like, I just said that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, I, you know, learning, understanding that, first of all, the adult educate, the adult attention span is 10 minutes. Yeah. And then we check out and we wander around. The child attention span is five to seven. So, Teach for five to seven minutes. Stop. Allow them to speak and talk within within their group. You know, I don't. Eric, you seem pretty young, but when I was growing up, if the principal came down the hall and heard any noise, learning wasn't taking place. Well, that is so wrong, <laughs> right? We know learning is taking place if there's noise in the room because one thing we don't know is if the teacher's doing all the talking and the students are doing all the listening, we don't know what kind of learning is taking place. Yep. Who's doing the work? Yeah. So we, we need to, you know, stop in seven minutes and then ask the kids, you know, OK, get together in your group. I need you to write me three sentences on what you what we just talked about, what you learned. Write down any new words and then let's share out. Right now, you just disengage them from listening and put them into a learning activity. And then three to five minutes later, bring them back. Right. Mm -hmm. You just reset the attention span clock. But you also mm -hmm. you're keeping them engaged. And guess what? Remember what, what our parents used to say? Idle hands or the devil's workshop, <laughs> right? You got to keep that mind engaged and students want structure, right? And students don't act out when they are getting support and that peer support is vital. You have more students who will disconnect and act out when a teacher is on one is the only one talking, when a teacher is the lecturer of the classroom, the muse in front of the classroom. We want that teacher to be a facilitator. Yeah, that's a great point. And I know speaking along the lines of student behavior, you recently published a book called Working with Our 4D Students, Defiant, Difficult, Disrespectful, and Disruptive. Tell us about that a little bit and how did you come up with those categories? You know, because we, and I did it on purpose because I want to make sure we stay away from labeling kids. But the one thing that I, the biggest thing when I, whenever I present is that word working, right? When you say working with, that means you are, you're making adjustments, you're making allowances, you're, 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 you're figuring things out. But when you say dealing with, that's the frustration, <laughs> right? Yeah. So it's not dealing with our 4D students, it's working with them. And, and I, I think I say this in the book that we will do far more if we, if we uh, change the beliefs of adults, build relationships with our students, uh, change our attitudes, create a culture and a climate that is, you know, that, that welcome students and an environment of engagement, right? That would do far more for closing the achievement gap than any punitive action we have. And so we, we, we always think about this one thing when, when students are disconnected from learning. Oh, that student's off task. No, no, no. Why is that student disconnected from learning? We have to get to the root of why that disconnect happened. And I, you know, I have a, one of my favorite teachers of all time, Miss Adams. She said, I when she walked into the interview, I have to say this, when she walked in, her shirt wasn't ironed, her pants was wrinkled, 
And I looked over at my academic dean and I said, this is going to be a really short interview. <laughs> right. Yeah. And yeah. she came in and she goes, you know, Mr. Davis, I really have no expectations you give me this job, but I want to interview in a way because I think I'd be a great teacher. I said, well, why do you think you'd be a great teacher? And we started talking and she said, I have dyslexia and I have a master's degree in math. And I have, and all through school, teachers told me reading was fun, but it wasn't fun for me. She said, but now that I'm, I have a master's degree and I've been teaching, I tell students who struggle in math, math may not be fun for you. It may not be fun ever, but it's always going to be useful. And let me show you how. Once she said that, that was it. You're hired. <laughs> right. And she ended up being the greatest math teacher I ever had. Amazing. My, the, uh, the greatest English, I was as a uh, central office person, the greatest English coordinator I had was born in Mexico. She learned English as a second language. And her thing was, Mr. Davis, if I can learn English to speak it, to write it properly, anybody can. I didn't even know how to speak English when I came here. And so she had great AP scores as a teacher. She had great passing rate. She had great classroom. So I, I hired her and made her a coordinator so she could teach every English teacher that passion that she had. So uh, I think those tools, right? Children deserve to have people in front of them who smile at work. But our teachers deserve to have people in front of them who smile, who work over them. It means that joy is missing from our schools. That's what's missing. Joy is missing. Yeah. Yeah. One more question kind of put the, the bow on this topic of, of student behaviors. So when you're working with a teacher, several teachers, what do you think teachers are looking for from their administrators? So again, specific yeah. around behavior, discipline, classroom management, what are teachers looking for from their admins? Well, I will tell you the reason I wrote the book is it's kind of similar to what you're asking me. A lot of teachers, and, and I want a lot of young teachers for sure, uh, when the student leaves their classroom, that student has upset them. So that teacher wants that student to leave the principal's office angry too. Well, see, that's a lose, lose, lose situation, mm -hmm. right? So when you start talking to, once a teacher has a couple of years under their belt, you start to see things like, <clears throat> what do you, when you ask them, so how can I support you better? And most of them will just say, I just need, a, I just need you walking through my room randomly at different times a day. And when you have five administrators, do it. That's easy to do. Walk through a classroom, right? If, and you're not walking through for discipline. You're not you're walking through to make sure instruction is taking place. But the students don't know that. Mm. So visibility, I think that is the biggest thing. And it doesn't cost you anything. Get out of your office and be be visible. But I would I tell all my teachers this when you write a letter home to parents and I just shared it with my son. I said, this is when, when you write a letter home, if you have to call about a parent, about a child, there's two things I want you to do. First, I want you to start off by saying hi, I'm Mr. Davis. I'm here to talk to you about your child, their success is in jeopardy, not their failing because failing is already done. Yeah. But when you say their success is in jeopardy, the parent says, oh, what can we do to, 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 to keep them from failing? Right. How can we support you? That's a whole different topic than, hey, I'm calling you because your kid has turned hadn't turned into anything and they're failing my class. Mm -hmm. And then number two, uh, and I talk about this in a book, when you contact parents, I always say if we have a parent conference or if you contact the parents, keep it in the bag. And that stands for behavior, attendance, or grades. If you're not talking about any one of those three things, we're not having a parent-teacher conference. Never make it personal. Behavior, attendance, grades. Keep it in the bag. 
<laughs> and I would always give them these, remember the brown lunch bags? <laughs> and I would have them decorated with little pencils and pens in it. And I would say, hey, when you meet with a parent, remember, keep it in the bag. That's and, so and this, Yeah, it's an acronym that they can live with, right? But, you know, so many, so many teachers want it when you have a parent-teacher conference, and I know you've engaged with this teacher, they want to be the first one to speak. The reality is it's a parent teacher conference. So even by virtue of the title, the parent gets to speak first. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so true. Yeah. And not just here are all the problems, but here are the behaviors I'm seeing. Yeah. Yes. Makes total sense. My very first parent teacher conference, I was I was I was on a block schedule. So I was the eighth period teacher for this student. So I was the last teacher they spoke to, right? Mm-hmm. Every teacher walked out of there. I mean, every teacher had just got chewed up by this parent. The counselor sent for me and she said, hey, tell Miss Davis it hadn't been going well. You know, I know he's a new teacher, uh, but we're going to support him as much as we can. And I walk in there and, and, and the mom and dad, are they're, they're already fuming because seven teachers have talked about how bad their student was. Yeah, That's personal, right? That's emotional. And I said, you know what? I really enjoy having her in class, but she's I think she's somewhat of a socialite. I think everybody likes her and she and everybody li- loves to hear about what she's done over the weekend. And sometimes that gets in the way of learning. And, and, my, and the mom goes, she's like that at home. <laughs> <laughs> and just like that, that hope. And the counselor was like, after it was like, Mr. Davis, you should give a, a class on how to do a parent teacher conference. I said, what are you talking about? <laughs> you know, it wasn't personal to me. You know, yeah. every student thinks what they've been, what they've, indulged in is the most important thing in the world. Yeah. Because it is for them. It is. Yeah. It's a me audience, right? It's my audience. So and I, so I didn't take it personal, you know, and I believe this, if a student has six zeros, that student didn't fail. We failed that student. Because mm. there's no way a student should sit in our classroom and have six zeros and you haven't contacted a parent. You haven't contacted an administrator. You haven't spoke with counseling, right? You haven't spoke to an interventionist. You know, what are we doing to get those? Because uh, we're paid to grade papers. And when we grade those papers, we get to know where the student at and how we can help them. But with zeros, we have no evidence of how we can support that child. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I want to shift so, a little bit to, you have a leadership model, the internal leadership model. What, yeah. what have you seen from the traditional K-12 leadership model and why are you advocating for a different model? Well, you know, the uh, it's I, I created it because it's called the, uh, you ever heard this concept called random knowledge sharing? Sure. Right. So when when you're a principal at a school, you don't have another peer. You're not an assistant principal. You're the principal. In fact, when assistant principals walk into teachers meeting, the teachers stop talking. When principals walk into the assistant principal, they stop talking. Right. So you, you are really isolated. So what I do with the internal leadership model is I take three principals from three different schools. It doesn't have to be high school. It can be high school, middle school, elementary. It doesn't matter what the level is. And allow them to work together and share their, their genius talks with things they've experienced with that principal who may have never experienced that. Help them with instructional strategies. I'll take those two I'll take two of those principals and we'll go visit Eric's campus this week. And we'll do we'll sit with Eric for 15, 20 minutes. Eric, what can what can we expect to see? What do you want us to look for? And then you'll take us to those rooms. Oh, Eric, you're having problems with English teachers, so we're going to be visiting English rooms today. Okay, which class, which teachers is it? Oh, we're going to be visiting five these five teachers. So after we walk those five teachers, my my leadership team and the other leadership team that's with me will sit down with you with your leadership team and tell you what what we seen, what we didn't see. Here's your expectations. Oh, this teacher was doing it great. 
and then we'll make suggestions to you, right? And it's it's that creative agility, right? Between now between peers, it's not coming from your supervisor, which sounds like a reprimand. It's coming. It's you're bouncing these great ideas, this random knowledge, just on this it's random information that will turn the knowledge off of your peers, and your peers are supporting you. And in two weeks, you're going to go to one of their campuses, and you and your team is going to walk and do the same thing. And it's going to grow your teachers. It's going to grow you. It's going to strengthen you as an instructional leader. And it takes it takes the focus off of you're not doing something right. Eric, if you send me an email and say, Larry, I want to meet with you. From the moment I get that email, I'm like, this is documentation. Right. So I never send emails. I always walk to the teacher's room. And just as I was doing other classrooms, I didn't just walk specifically to that classroom. That teacher may see me walk into four or five classrooms before I get to them. Then I would say, hey, Eric, could you, uh, when you have some time, let's schedule a time to sit down and talk about how your year is going. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. And then that, that it would come down and I would never meet you in my office. We're going to go to the conference room. We're going to sit side by side, not across the table from each other. It's going to be, it's not going to be adversarial at all, but that internal leadership model allows you to have that random knowledge sharing. It prepared you for genius talks. And then here's that, that great idea. Eric, your school had the best English scores. How did you prep your kids? Now you're sharing that secret with two other schools and they're sharing their secrets with you. That's the power of the internal leadership model. So as you're as you're going to different buildings and different classrooms, is it kind of like a teacher observation? Is is it are you approaching instructional strategies? Are you approaching, you know, structure like we talked about at the beginning? What what are you looking for? Well, in, in the internal leadership model, what you're doing is you're in so every school writes a CIP, a campus improvement plan every year. And that thing's about 75, 79 pages, right? Mm-hmm. But once the school board approves it, teachers never look at that thing again. Yeah. Right? The internal leadership model is a one to two page improvement report. And it focuses only on your teachers and your students. So that's what we're looking at. And we're going to help you write it. Your team's going to help you write it. We're going to write it based on your data and your culture. Right. And then we're going to observe things based like that. And this is a great way to identify those students who are struggling, constantly struggling. Right. Uh, I always tell people, you know, when you look at data and go, we're going to fix this based on this. Data tells you where you are. Your culture tells you how you got there. And this is a great way to build that culture. Right. And who's in your classroom? The administrators. What do teachers want to see? More of the administrators. Right. Mm -hmm. And uh, also, this is a great way to the administrators. One of, the, one of the biggest great point, part of it is if we're talking about English, if we're talking about your campus and English is your trouble spot, we're going to invite your English department head to come into one of those meetings and listen to us. And we're going to listen to her and, 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 she, and she's going to share out and, and we're going to talk about that. Most people do walkthroughs just for evaluations. Mm-hmm. Under the internal leadership model, we do them for gap analysis. Where are the gaps at? How can we fill them? How can we support you? Right. Uh, mm-hmm. One thing we identify is here's a, a new teacher. We need to let this teacher get a sub a couple of days a month and let this teacher shadow this really good uh, teacher with great classroom management, great uh, instructional strategies, great classroom procedures. And then give that teacher some time and let them go and shadow that teacher who's struggling. Right. These are all things we can identify through that. And that's why it's important. When you think about the traditional model, everything flows down. Right. And at the bottom, you have all these people. And I call my teachers at the bottom. I call them uh, priority workers because they're on the front line. But in the internal leadership model, it's circular. And information flows in and out and throughout uh, the whole organization. Mm -hmm. So then do you, 
you talked about a one to two page document that basically sets out, here's the improvement plan. And you mentioned the gap analysis. What, what are you measuring a gap against? Is it like student scores? What, what's that look like? Great, great question. That's a great. So you measured against a couple of things, right? So if I look at last year's data or a bench, uh, we have a benchmark or we have a universal screener, we look at that data, right? We look at what TEKS or common core standards that the majority of our kids miss, which ones that only a few miss and things like that. Then we look at did a, did how many of this teacher's kid miss it versus the other teachers. And then we look at how many missed it district wide. So when you look at the gap analysis, we look at here's the following thing is, is it a, a student issue? Is it an instructional issue or is it a system issue, right? If only a few students missed it, then that becomes an, a, a student issue. Okay, these students didn't get it. If we see that a large group missed it, but only from one teacher's classroom, that becomes a teacher instructional issue. But if it's, if it's throughout the whole district, all the students miss this one uh, uh, objective, that's a system problem. We're not teaching something right in the system. So that gap analysis gives us an opportunity to go back and just reevaluate how we're teaching, what we're teaching, and make sure that we cover it. And then we can look at where, where are the teachers for this particular objective taught, and how have we been teaching them? And reality is some teachers, the reality is some teachers are, they love to teach what they love to teach and they don't love to teach what they don't like. And yeah. sometimes that's what the gap analysis shows. Interesting. I've never thought of it approached that way. Is this a student, is this an instructional or is this more of a systemic issue? Yes. I think what that does is it, it helps you to point in what should the right solution be, but you're not saying this is a teacher problem. This is a personal problem. It's a, hey, this is maybe some instruction that we're missing. Yes. So going back to just how we treat kids and not being personal with the kids, I think it's vitally important to treat adults in the exact same way. Right. It's funny, my, my youngest is on a travel baseball team and last night had our hardest practice by far this fall. It's a first team putting put together and we were pretty hard on the kids last night. But at the end I said, you know, this isn't a you thing. This is, we're not upset with you. You are still as a person valuable. We're looking at some of the actions that we saw today and pointing out the actions and working on some improvement plans for those actions. I think adults need to be treated the same way. It's not a personal oh, yeah. thing. I'm not talking to you as an individual. I'm talking about a behavior. I'm talking about instruction. I'm talking about choices that are being made. I think that's, that's sometimes right. forgotten in the employee experience as well. And we and, and we and as adults, we call that uh, if we're talking about our, 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 our wife or our husband, we call that fair fighting. Right. Mm. So let's not again, let's let's talk about the issue without making it without the rejection, without making it personal. And I, I, I like that. And you, you think about a teacher will. A teacher will be more likely to come to you with something they're struggling with if they see you as supportive. But if they see yes. you as a stinger. They're just going to wait to the end and deal with the consequences because they don't have to deal with the fallout all year long. Right. And so teachers, I, 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 so Rita Pearson said students learn from teachers they like. Teachers work harder for administrators they like. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, I have teachers emailing me now all the time. Mr. Davis, we miss you. We this, we that. And, and they'll bring up something I did. And I had a teacher, one of my favorite. He, he looks like a wrestler. He was a football coach, a linebacker coach. And every, every uh, Halloween, I would give out the popcorn balls. <laughs> and he goes, listen, 
I work for these popcorn balls. It's not the check. It's these popcorn balls. Mr. Davis, you bring these. In. <laughs> and yeah. then at Christmas, I would give out the little Maracena cherry, uh, cherries, right? And they were like, one day I was out and they was like, wait a minute, uh, we only got one day left in a week before we go to break and Mr. Davis hadn't brought the cherries. <laughs> so I got that. out and took them around. But, you know, it, it's a relationship. Both of those are relationships. It's not what we say, it's how we say it. And how we say it is more impactful if we have a relationship with that mm -hmm. person. You know? mm -hmm. uh, I don't know if you ever heard of a guy named Steve Gilliland, right? Mm -hmm. He did something called Leadership with Heart. And his thing was, Rita Pearson said that students don't learn from teachers they don't like. He said that people don't follow leaders who know nothing about them. Mm -hmm. So if we don't know anything about our teachers and our teachers don't know anything about our students, that's a recipe for disaster. Right. Where is the where is the authenticity in it? Uh, there's a book came out years and years ago called Working on the Works. And it is it describes different types of engagement. And I'm talking about students, but you're going to be able to easily adapt this to adults. Right. So you have the I'm going to go reverse. I'm not going to go best to worst. I'm going to go worst to best. <laughs> so you have the rebellious. Right. That person comes in to distract your class, disrupt your class, not going to do work and they're loud. Right. That's usually only about three percent of your class. Right. And then three percent could be one person, depending on how side, side your class. And then you have the retreatist. The retreatist is the one who doesn't say anything. They're not going to disrupt your class, but they won't do any work. That's usually about five percent. Right. And the retreatist really counts on a rebellious person to distract the teacher away from them anyway. So they just sit there quietly and. They have an E in citizenship and an F in grades. <laughs> so you're like, well, how's that possible? Next, you have what is called the passive engaged student. That passively engaged student is going to be eligible long as it's football season. They play football. They're going to be eligible long as it's volleyball season because they play volleyball. And then they could fall into one of the other two categories. Right. But it's up to us to try to keep them engaged. And then you have the. Uh, it's called the authentic engaged. Right. No, I'm sorry, the ritual engaged. The ritually engaged is the one who, okay, I don't really like what you're teaching, but I'm trying to get to Brown University mm -hmm. and my GPA matters. So I'm going to learn it, right? And then you have the authentic engaged student. This student just wants to learn because they love to learn. We know that's a very small group, right? They want to learn, but those authentic and ritual engaged students, they're going to be successful no matter who their teacher is because they have goals in mind. Right. Mm -hmm. So if we focus on that passively engaged, that uh, rebellious, and that retreatist, that's how we start to close that achievement gap. But that rebellious, that retreatist and that passively engaged, those are the students who are being suspended and put in ISS most of the time. It's rare we put an authentically engaged student in ISS. And the reason we don't or send them to an alternative school. And the reason we don't is because it would be a double punishment because they're taking AP courses and they're alternative campuses don't offer AP courses. So we'd be punishing them in two different ways. We're killing their GPA. We're taking away their AP courses and we send them to an, another setting. So we don't do that to our top 10 students, our top 20 students, but we do it to our middle, that middle 70. <laughs> mm -hmm. We do it to them all the time. So when you look at that kind of engagement, how do you build a classroom to get that retreatist or uh, to work with that retreatist, which is working with our 40 students to Connect with that uh, that uh, no, connect with the retreatist, uh, support that retreatist, and keep that passively engaged student totally engaged. 
If we can do that, we can close the achievement gap. Yeah. Yeah. And again, some parallels between students and faculty, because there will be mm-hmm. faculty on those exact same, those yes. categories, if you will. Yep. So thinking about it that way, those, the rebellious faculty that you might have, what can you do to support them? How do you work on the retreatists? Yes. How do you work on the passively engaged? There's a lot of parallels there. Yeah, when I walk into a meeting, if I'm talking about my data, and I'm talking about the data of the campus as a principal, even as a district leader, and we're saying we need to focus on math scores. Well, every English, social studies, science, foreign language teacher, they're saying to themselves, why are we here talking about math? Well, because every strategy we do in every classroom can support each classroom because every test we take is really a reading test, right? Every test we give students is a reading test. So what tools can we use in every classroom that's going to support reading, revising, editing, and rewriting? If we can do that, they can read a math test, right? Math is a universal language. It's the way it's written that becomes a complication, mm-hmm. right? Because they don't, they don't understand the written problem, but they understand the numbers, right? So when we have... We have a teacher will, here's something I did, and I, I'm not proud of this, but I, I use it all the time. My first year as a principal, I had, we're doing my uh, in-service, I had on the on the projector, on the big screen in the auditorium, all teachers moved to the first six rows of the auditorium, right? Mm. You know, you've got the three sections, the two on the side and a big section in the middle. And so that's more than enough seats for my teachers. They were all over the auditorium. <laughs> so I got, the, I got the microphone. I said, before I start, I would like every... St- teacher here to read the uh, wording on the projector and move to the first six rows. It took them about 10 minutes grumbling. They, they were showing me as a new principal, you don't tell me what to do. I'm going to do it. You know, da, da. And then and the next slide I had up there was we wrote 600 referrals for students out of their seat. They went mm. quiet. <laughs> we wrote 600 referrals for students. And here you are out of your seat. I asked you to sit in the first six rows and you're all over the auditorium. And uh, it just went deathly quiet. And so that's just a perfect example of adult acting like students, but they don't see their actions as different, you know? That's right. That's right. I, I, we could talk for days. I think this is fantastic. I have a couple of kind of wrap up questions to end our conversation today. The first being, if you can go back and give yourself advice before you began serving in education, what would that advice be? Wow. Uh, I think it would be work as hard as you can to create student-centered schools where every decision we made was based on the problems of students, where every solution we came up with was based on the situation with students, where every dollar we spent was more focused on student learning, not so much uh, the population. Oh, you got 900 kids, you get this much money. No, you have 900 kids, but you have a high special ed population, you have a high ESL population, you have a low socioeconomic population, so you, you require and deserve more money. I, I think it would be based on student-centeredness and equity and diversity. Uh, I just, you know, education needs to champion. Our children deserve mm-hmm. one. Yeah. What's one action or strategy that you hope every school leader listening today walks away with and implements in their own building, their own classroom, their own organization? You know what? Every, every teacher you know that we know, they have that one story or that one kid, they went out of their way to make sure they were successful. And they're glad to share that story with you over and over and over again. Why not make that the norm with every student in your class? That way you have new stories to tell every year and people are more welcome. Mm-hmm. 
So if I had one thing to say, it would be love our children. That should be in every campus improvement plan. Love our children. Because, you know, I would on Monday, Eric, I would say, I haven't seen you all weekend. And I know a lot of you may not have heard this. So let me be the first to tell you, welcome back. And I love you. And I would say that every day. And on Friday, I would say, in case I don't see you this weekend, I want to let you know that I love you. If you don't hear it this weekend, I love you. And my son, he was, I was his principal. His stu- students were coming up. Does your dad mean that? He goes, yeah, you should go get to know him. And you'll be surprised. <laughs> right. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. What's one celebration that you've recently experienced? Could be personally, could be professionally. You know, personally, my son became a teacher and I know he never wanted to be a teacher, but his, his personality is an extrovert. His personality is perfect for it. And so he tried to do all these, uh, you know, he worked at a uh, physical therapy and he worked from home, you know, and I, I would tell him, I said, you're miserable, aren't you? He goes, no, no, I enjoy it. I'm like, no, you're miserable. I can tell. And so he started teaching and every day he calls me home on his way home. Dad, this happened, this happened, this happened, <laughs> you know, and I said, you know, and you're going to get this year, you may get one student who tells you, thank you. But I want you to remember all these things you talk about every time you call me, all this exciting stuff, all these things that you're learning this new. And so he's almost like a kid in a candy store. And that to me, mm-hmm. that he saw that in me, how I enjoy teaching. And I never brought home problems. I never came home saying I was upset. Now I came home on empty a lot, but that was gas well spent, right? <laughs> yeah, that's a great way of phrasing it. And last question is, how can people get a hold of you if they want to? Thank you. For, okay, you can go to larry.davis at remedyteam.org. That's my email. Or you can just go to remedyteam.org and you can go straight to my site and there's a contact me page. Uh, doing some really great work. I've recently been asked to start trying to find recruitment for people. And that's, uh, there was a founder mm-hmm. company out of, uh, Eric, you'll appreciate this, founder company out of uh, Silicon Valley. And here I am in Texas. <laughs> and, and she wanted me to recruit her a, uh, chief of staff and a copywriter. And, and I said, okay, can, are they going to be local or are they going to be remote? And so she had very specific demands. And I was like, well, based on your demands, do you want somebody who's young and aggressive and wants to do this job and they have the experience and the know-how? Or do you, she said, no, I want a military person with X amount of experience. And I said, I want you to understand this. Next year, you're going to be on that person's resume. <laughs> because if they have this kind of experience and they're military and this is your salary in Silicon Valley, the military will relocate them anywhere in the United States. That's a lot cheaper to live than Silicon Valley and they can make, you know, make more money. So that comprehensive analysis and talking to people about when they, what they ask for, when they meet with me and sharing that knowledge. And sometimes it's a little tough bullet to bite. Uh, but you know, my job is to tell you the truth. You know, it's not to lie to you and get you to give me the business. And then you go, well, this is not what you promised me. So that, sure. yeah. So remedyteam.org. Here's a shirt, you know, love talking to people, school businesses, uh, you know, and just, just changing the culture that we live in because you know what? People don't leave companies. They leave people and the company is the one who get the bad reputation. Yeah. Yep, that's right. Well, Larry, keep up the good work. Really appreciate you sharing your expertise with us today. Thank you. This has been the Employee Experience and Education Podcast. 
Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform, and don't forget to leave a review. Thanks, and have a wonderful day.